Well, <laughs> we now have an opening for a children's pastor if anybody's looking for one. That, that uh, No, I'm just kidding. That's Nathan for you. Love Nathan. We'll be dealing with him later on. So anyway, uh, it's great. Isn't it fun? Yes. It's good to see you this morning. We are so glad you're here at Hope Fellowship. Could you turn to someone around you and say good morning to them? Could you say that? Yeah. Maybe someone on the other side of you now and say good morning. Yes. Ah. It's a beautiful day, and we are glad that you are here. We are in a series through the book of Acts together. Today, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 4, where we'll revert back to chapter 3, filling you kind of in on all the holes that we're going to leave, and then we'll end up in chapter 5. And you say, Mark, that's a lot. We're not going to read all of that, so just, okay, it's all right, it's, it's fine. But today, as we begin, I want to, show, to kind of tell you what this is about. This is about simply the thought of Barnabas are Ananias. And, and so it's a question. And you say, well, I'm not really sure who those two people are, Barnabas or Ananias. Well, we're going to talk about those in, in just a moment. Let me tell you where we left off last week in the book of Acts, and then we will kind of work our way through to the text we're going to talk about today from chapter 4 and then the first of chapter 5. Last week, we ended with Ephesians chapter 3. We're studying the book of Acts, but he ended with Ephesians chapter 3. And we ended with this illustration of a painting. We had a big painting, a big canvas up here. And, and so we simply said that in this illustration that God was this great wise painter and that the canvas that God is painting on is that the canvas of all history, that of everything from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And the masterpiece that God is painting is the revealing of his manifold wisdom to you and I. That's why we use Ephesians chapter 3. So we define manifold wisdom as it appears in Ephesians chapter 3, as it appears nowhere else in the scriptures. And it simply means that of various or varying colors. And so Walt talks about simply this as uh, that of the intricate detail of God's character and nature and God's plan for mankind of redemption. So it is a revealing of this very detailed and intricate plan of God to mankind. He is painting this on that of the canvas of history. And he is doing that, it says in Ephesians, through the empowered church. And so we we laid out all of those elements of the illustration, but we came down to the brushes. So if God is the painter, the canvas is history. God is creating this masterpiece, revealing himself throughout all of history to mankind and his plan for redemption for you and I. Then where are the brushes, the messy, inconsistent, varying in styles and sizes and appearances? Where are those brushes and who do they simply uh, illustrate? And that is you and I, that we are the brushes, that we are the ones. It's a sobering fact that God uses to reveal his character and nature and his plan in that of history to the world. It it is a very sobering thought. And so we came to this understanding of who the church is as is described in the book of Acts chapter 2. And we read that. It's, it's called historically that of the fellowship of believers. And, and that is that it's a powerful church being clothed with power from on high, the promise that we find in the book of Luke. And the early church, it says in, Luke, or in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42, that they were persistently devoted to four things. And so it lists those things for us. It says, one, that they were persistently devoted to the apostles' teaching, that of the teaching of the New Testament, that the word was being revealed to them through teaching. And secondly is this, that they were uh, devoted to fellowship. It's how the church does life, and the church does life together, that they were fiercely devoted to one another. And it says also they were devoted to communion. 
It's about what we're going to do in a few moments is that we go to the Lord's table, be yet, yet alike, but yet a little different because culturally it was a full meal. And you say, Mark, why don't we have that now? You know, why don't you serve us like this full meal, you know, when we come in here for communion? And so, but yet it is a full meal for you in that of a spiritual sense. But they would break the bread and that being symbolizing the broken body of Christ, the juice, the wine that they would partake with being that of remembering the blood that was shed for the remission of their sins. And so through that, they had this deep commitment to Christ, resulting in a deep commitment to one another. And the fourth thing is they were devoted to prayer. That they were an extremely relational church. And not only were they relational with one another, but they were relational with their God. And we know that that is what prayer is. Prayer is a spiritual discipline that's rooted in relationship. It's about us talking to our Father. So they are a church that is clothed in power, uh, clothed in power from on high, that of the Holy Spirit. It's the fulfillment we find in Luke chapter 24 that's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, that they are a church of commonality, they're a church of great generosity, and they're a very powerful relational church. So let me read a little about them from chapter 4 to you. It's chapter 4 and verse 32. It describes exactly what we have just said about the church. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. You think, wow, that is an amazing thing to achieve, to get like more than one person together in one room, and they actually have everything in common, and they are in one mind and one heart. That is a great achievement. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Verse 34, And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands of houses sold them and and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And you say, Mark, that's amazing that they were actually able to have a church like that. They were either doing something really right or they were doing something really wrong. But, but it was working. And some people say, well, they had to be sort of soft-selling the gospel message. They couldn't really be preaching the gospel and have that kind of community and have those number of converts that are coming into the church. They have to be soft-selling something. That would explain their growth and their unity because you can't tell the truth to people and people be happy. You can't do that, right? That's just not going to work. It, it, it absolutely doesn't work. So they're soft selling the message of the gospel to get all these converts and to keep everybody in the church happy. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. It is the furthest thing from the truth. Because if you go to Acts chapter 3 backwards for a moment in verse 13, we find here Peter again, he's preaching his second sermon. His first sermon is after the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people come to know Christ and are baptized and are empowered by the Holy Spirit that day. But here is his second sermon, and he's preaching this under the power of the Holy Spirit. And and so it's powerful because here's another reason why, that just before this, that Peter and John have come to the temple, they pass through the gate beautiful, they see the lame man that's been there. He's been, well, the Bible tells us he's 40 years old. So he's probably been there maybe 10 years, I'm sorry, 30 years or longer. He's been there all of his life, most likely. Everyone knows him. 
And so here is Peter. He's standing up preaching. And he has simply said to the lame man prior to that, he said, I don't have any silver and I don't have any gold, paraphrasing. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And so he walks. And so this second sermon is Peter. He's speaking to the people there because he knows what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, Peter and John have some kind of power to heal. But he has to really make this straight and make this right. So he's standing there before them. And the lame man who is healed, who is now standing and walking, he's standing beside him. What a powerful moment. And so here's what Peter says in Acts 3.13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. I have to stop there for a minute, give you a little understanding of what's kind of going on. And here's the thing. I don't know, have you ever heard of the Oreo method of communication? Have you ever heard of that? Have you ever? It's kind of a three-step part of communication, right? So you either give them, you give them like the bad news first, you put some good news in the middle, and you give them a little more bad news, right? Or you give them that of the good news and a little bad news in the middle, and you give them the good news at the end. It kind of helps in, in communication. So what, is, what Peter is doing here, he's giving them some really good stuff right at the beginning. He's saying, hey, you can connect with this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers. And they'll say, yeah, we understand that. Then he says, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy Spirit, the righteous one, and asked for a murder to be granted to you. Now, can I tell you, this is no soft sell of the gospel. Here's what he's saying to these people. And you kill the author of life. Wow. Yes. It got quiet like that, like it just got quiet here. Yes. It sucks all the energy out of the room. You kill the author of life. It was. So he's giving them a good news saying, hey, here's who you are. Here is kind of your background. Here's the tough thing that you kill the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And he's saying, hey, you can't deny this because I saw you do it with my very eyes is what he's saying. Then he gives him a little more good news. After He gives him good news again. He says this, and his name by faith is, or his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. There's no soft sell there, is there? Absolutely not. You, know, you get up on a Sunday morning and tell people that they have killed the author of life. You know that, that's, not, that's not what you want to simply say, hey, turn around and greet someone around you and say, hey, do you realize you killed the author of life? That's not the way you start out a service. It's not. It's going to like leave this damp, I think, heavy feeling over the, the group. Absolutely. It is not. Not the way you start. But that is exactly what he does, that he, he doesn't soft sell the gospel at all. Because why? Because the early church truly believed that the gospel was the simply the power of God unto salvation. It's God telling them the truth about themselves. And that's good news. And that's what we have to hear. It's God telling them the truth about themselves. And that's good news. <clears throat> because here is the thought. I think that there's hope in an all-knowing God with whom there is nothing hidden. That we hide nothing from God. That God knows everything about us. Isn't that true? That there is nothing hid to Him. But how many times do we live our lives as if we can hide something from Him? That I would say if we were to ask you to raise your hands in a survey, if we were to do this, 
that most of you have probably tried to think or you have or you have thought this week that you have somehow hidden something from God and you have this secret that God doesn't know about there. But there is this hope and there is this power and this freedom in knowing that we serve a God that nothing is hid from him. Yet he still loves us and he still accepts us that these are people that are marked by powerful gratitude and praise, deep love for one another inside and outside of the church. They're bold in their faith. And so following that sermon that day, if you go to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that sermon where he talks to those people after the healing of the layman, here's what happens. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So I begin to calculate. You know, I begin to calculate in my own brain here. And I thought, well, if there's 5,000 men and half of them are married, then that gives us that gives us the 7500 and then if every family has 1.5 children you know i don't know i don't know where that number comes from you know right but not i i just chose one it's easier math for me and so if each family has one child that's 2500 kids you add it to the 7500 people that came to Christ men and their women wives and so here's the deal there's 10000 people minimal There's 10,000 people in that moment where God is reading their hearts through Peter's word. And it's good news. Understand that. That we can never be afraid of the truth of our lives. We have to face that. Because in understanding the truth of who we are and the truth of our own hearts is where we find freedom. Because it is a truth that sets us free in life. It's not some facade or veneer that we hide behind. These are people that Peter is standing up in front of and he's telling him, telling them, you kill the author of life and then they still come to Christ. That is powerful. That is so powerful because it is the truth that sets us free. When we hide behind the veneers of our life, we find ourselves living in bondage, but the truth brings freedom. And so after Peter's sermon, this being his second sermon, He and John, they're brought by the Jerusalem council in to simply be questioned about what happened about the healing of this lame man. And Peter stands up with this boldness of the Holy Spirit in his life and standing beside him is this healed lame man and he's speaking before the Jerusalem council. So what do you do with that, right? What do you do with that? Here is Peter. Here is John. Standing between them is this lame man. He's 40 years old. He's probably been lying at the gate beautiful begging for alms almost all of his life. Most everyone has seen him. They know of him. A lot of people know him by name, most likely. And yet he's standing there with Peter. What does the council do with that kind of situation? How do you handle that? How do you, how do you handle that? And so here's what Peter says to them. Chapter 4, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're asking Peter, the council is about how this lame man was healed. And then Peter said, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the promise that we have found and we have discovered in the book of Luke chapter 24, that he's clothed with power from on high. He said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and you know what? Peter could have stopped there. He could have said, hey, it's by the name of Jesus of Nazareth and just stopped and let it lie there. But no, Peter, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he goes on. Whom you, look what he says. 
He doesn't soft sell the gospel. Whom you crucified, again, all the air is sucked from the room. There's that moment of silence. Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under the heavens given among men by which you must be saved. He preaches the gospel. He makes Christ known. What do they do? They don't respond like the first crowd. They threaten him. They threaten him because this message is a threat to them. And so they threaten him and said, Peter, John, you cannot speak the name of Jesus ever again. We can't explain what has happened here, but you can't go out and you can't speak the name of Jesus again. What does Peter do? He keeps his mouth closed? Absolutely not. He goes to a friend's house. He tells them how the council has threatened him. What do they do? They begin to pray for greater boldness in their life. They do. They begin to pray for greater boldness in their life, to speak in the name of Jesus, and they ask for more signs and wonders. They ask for more lame people and blind people to be healed. And where they're praying, it begins to shake. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they have great boldness, the text says. This is powerful. We have a church in the book of Acts who is clothed with power from on high. They have all things in common. They're fiercely devoted to God and to one another. The more they're persecuted, the bolder they become. More converts come to Christ. And out of that, it brings us to what we're going to talk about today. I brought you up to speed of where they are. It's Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. It introduces us to an individual. And I like this about the text because it always brings us back to this human element so you and I can connect. And so here's what it says in Acts 4 in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Who is Barnabas? I don't know if you ever wondered who Barnabas is. But I'm so glad you asked that question because it gives an opportunity for me to tell you. It does. And so I began to research who he is and and reading through Scripture because Barnabas is given to us for a very powerful reason for our life today. So I began to look. In in chapter 9, all these are in the book of Acts. In chapter 9, we find that he's one of the greatest supporters of Paul when Paul becomes a new convert. In In chapter 11, we find that he leads the Gentile converts in Antioch. In chapter 11, he cares for the poor. In chapter 13, he partners with Paul on his first missionary journey. You may not have known that. In chapter 15, he's the one that comes to the defense of John Mark after John Mark has failed to follow Paul where Paul wants to go. And so there's this dividing of the ways between that of Barnabas and Paul. And so what does does Barnabas do? He takes John Mark under his wings because he is one of the most mature and loving and reliable leaders of the early church. And what we just read about him selling a field, bringing it and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. It's the beginning of his ministry. So Mark, is this a sermon today about us going out and selling everything we own and bringing it and laying it at the altar at the front of the church? Is that what this is? Because if that's what this is all about, then I'm not in, you know, I'm not in about that. No, no, it is about the communal life of the church. It is because you can't take that element from the book of Acts. And when I say communal life of the church, 
I'm not talking about living in a commune like the 70s. You know what I'm saying? Do you, you know? You know, and, and some of you can't connect with that. You can Google it later if you want, you know. But, but I'm not talking about us living in a commune together and, and all wearing tie-dye all the time. That's not what this is about. And listening to groups like Credence Clearwater Revival. Do you remember them? Yes, yes. Some of you say, no, you have no idea. Uh, you, you have no idea who that is. Yes. And so I, I have to, you know, it, it's... It's, it's John and Tom Fogarty. Do you know who they are? No, you don't know who that is. It, it's songs like, have you ever seen the rain? Oh, that makes sense now, but I had no idea who that I'm not talking about that. No, but it's this idea of the church being able to live in harmony. Yes, liberating us from our selfishness. Absolutely. But yet at the same time, retaining the support that we need for our personal needs. It's the church living in common life. And so when I read all of this, it brings me to two thoughts. When you come to Jesus, when you come to Christ, I believe there are two things that truly happen in our lives as it relates to the church in the book of Acts. One is this. Our hearts are loosened in our relationships to things. That our hearts begin to be loosened in our relationship to things. Why? Because we understand who the source is of all things in our lives. We understand that. So it loosens our hearts for those relationships to things. And then what it does, it tightens our hearts in our relationships to people because we become to realize what is really important and what is eternal and what is of value. And the understanding and the, the thought is this, that things are not eternal, but people are. So we come to Christ. It loosens our, our hold on that of things, and it tightens our hold on people because those are things that are truly important. And so when you look at the book of Acts and we read about the church and we understand what they're about, then it's made up of people like Barnabas. It is. And you say, but Mark, I can't, I can't really connect <clears throat> because I'm not like that guy. You know, I'm a bit different. I have moments in my life when I am selfish. If we were to raise our hands in this room, then I, I would say that most of us say, yes, that those are things that I, I struggle with sometimes, that I really can't connect with people like that. I, I, I really can't. But Luke gives us Barnabas, but he also gives us a contrast here in a moment to help us really understand what he is getting at. And contrast is so powerful in Scripture and how it teaches us that of scriptural principles because what we find here is this principle or being taught through this contrast concept between that of Barnabas and this other man by the name of Ananias. Now, Acts chapter 5, verse 1. I want to read about Ananias for a moment. And what this is, this is an, an awesome narrative. It's full of intrigue and it's full of suspense. It really is. Yes, it, it is a great narrative. If you've never read Acts chapter 5, verse 1, uh, through a few verses here, it is really powerful. <clears throat> so can we read it together? It says this, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds brought only a part, that's an important thing, only a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Here is contrast, because there is same, but difference here. There is some things that are the same, but yet there is a stark difference in that of Barnabas and Ananias. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? I think it's important to understand. There's no rule in the New Testament church that says that when you sell something, you have to bring all the proceeds to the apostles. 
There's no rule, we find that nowhere in Scripture, where they say that that is an absolute hard and fast rule that you have to do that. People responded out of a heart of generosity, not a set of rules. Because we've said that before in so many of our teachings. That it's not rules that set us free. It's the transformation of our heart that frees us in life. Yes, it's God working in our hearts, not our set of rules that we check off the boxes by. So they're not, they're, they're not forced to do that. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's making this very clear. And after it was sold, was it not all at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Oh, here comes the good part. You ready? Here it is, verse 5. I mean, and when Ananias heard these things, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, theologically, let me give you an explanation of what just happened. He died, okay? Understand that, right? He died. Actually, he didn't die. No. There was no natural cause involved. He was killed. Understand that, right? Yes. And he wasn't killed by Peter either. That, that the Holy Spirit, God took him out. You say, Mark, is that, yes, yes, that is exactly what is here. I can't soft sell the message. Does God, does God kill everybody that lies to him? No. Aren't you glad, right? Yes. Woo. Some of you are proof to that by just being here and you're sucking air. Isn't that right? Oh, thank you, God. <laughs> that, that's not like this hard, fast rule. It's not. And here's what happened. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Well, absolutely. It would simply change the atmosphere of a worship service. It absolutely would. Yes. Yes. Uh, And it says the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and they buried him. And then Peter says, okay, who's next? That's not what it says. But I thought if I was Peter, that's what I would say as a joke at that moment to kind of, you know, loosen things up, you know. They're hauling Ananias out the door. Peter gets up, okay, who's next, you know, kind of deal. And then he laughs and he goes on. But that's not there. But if I was Peter, that's what I would have done. And verse 7 says, And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. (laughs) Bad for her, I'm telling you. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. I wonder if she thought, hmm, wonder what Ananias said, you know? And she said, yes, for so how She said, yes. Um, <clears throat> wait a minute, where am I? <laughs> and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Ah, I was in the right place. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. At least Peter gives her a warning. And Ananias had no warning, like, gone. You know, that was it. Peter said, hey, this is what about to happen to you. And immediately she fell down at her feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I've always wondered if the ushers really thought what was going to happen that day at church. You know, that that's what they were going to be doing. They were burying detail also. And verse 11 says... And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. A couple of thoughts here about this this morning. The first is this. Ananias wants to look like Barnabas. That's, that's truly what this is. That Ananias wants to look like Barnabas. In the midst of the commonality of the church, we discover hypocrisy. Is what we discover. Oh. So I, I love this because what this does, this takes our view of this church being almost untouchable for us, and it brings it down to the humanity of it that is still filled with people. Understand that, like you and I. It's still filled with folks like you and I that do dumb things at times in our life. It is. 
So this gets very real for us. So what I want to ask you to do is open your hearts this morning to, uh, I think, a truth that lies right under the, surface, under the surface of all of this. Because you're saying, Mark, is this a sermon about hypocrisy? Because if this is a sermon about hypocrisy, and I never... Now, can I tell you, don't be too quick to say that I never kind of thing, okay? Don't be too quick to go off with that, because I think you're going to see something here that you can connect with. Because the danger about expository preaching is that you can't simply skip over the tough things that you want to skip over. It's not. So the baseline of where we start is that of a definition of what is hypocrisy. The baseline of that, it's a pretense of having a virtuous character. The one I really like is this. It's a moral or religious belief that one does not truly possess. To bring it down to maybe where we can understand it, it's acting like something you're not. It's exactly what it is. It's acting like something you're not. Well, I never. Be careful saying that too quickly. Understand that. Because we have to understand who and what is Ananias. Ananias and Sapphira, they're church attenders. They are. They attend Hope Fellowship Jerusalem campus. That's where they go to church, right? That's exactly what they do. They have this tract of land. They sell it for a profit. They bring part of the proceeds to that of the apostles, pretending like it's all of the proceeds. They, They do. And they lay them at Peter's feet. You say, wait a minute. I have heard this story before. Yes, it was back in Acts chapter 4, 36 and 37. It is Barnabas. That is what has happening. Ananias wants to be Barnabas. That's exactly what's taking place. He has heard it himself also. And he's trying to emulate his behavior, Barnabas' behavior. There is nothing that constrains Ananias to give. There's no rule that says he has to do this whatsoever. In fact, when you read Chapter 5, verse 4, it makes it very plain while it remained unsold. Peter says, hey, didn't it remain, wasn't it yours to own? It was yours, he said. Nobody made you sell it. And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? The profits that you made, they were yours also. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and you have lied? You have not lied to man, but to God. Yes. You say, well, this story is about greed. And I think it's very easy to look at that, and yes, it applies to that. But I think there's something even more deeper and more powerful for you and I today than that of just talking about greed. It's about the unchanged heart of Ananias and his scheme to make it appear that his heart is one thing when it's another. That's what this is about. It's Ananias making his heart appear to be Barnabas' heart when it's not. And understand this, that Ananias... As far as we can tell, he was on the journey with everybody else in the church. He was. But his heart was not in the place that Barnabas' heart was with his relationship with God. And so he was not being just dishonest with himself, but he was being dishonest with God. He was. I, I would never do that. Wait a minute. Because how many times have we done that in our lives? That we have been honest with God, trying to hide things within our own hearts and our own lives, trying to simply look at our hearts and denying the content of that. And when we're denying the content of that, and God is a God that is all-knowing, are we not somehow misrepresenting ourselves to our loving God? Well, Mark, if I had known you were going to preach on hypocrisy today, then I would have gone to another church. You know, you need to warn us about these things, okay? Paul, listen, 
Peter didn't warn Ananias, I'm not going to warn you. I'm not, okay? Understand that. Yes. That this is something, a message that's given in the book of Acts for all of us in this room, where none of us are excluded from this today. No. Understand that. That he conceals the truth of his heart. He conceals the truth of his heart as if he was able to keep some kind of secret from God. That is what is the most amazing thing about all of this. That somehow he thinks he can keep a secret from God. Oh. And this happens in most of our lives. So here was my thought. How do I become a hypocrite? You say, Mark, that's the weirdest thing you've ever asked us, you know? It's like, what are you going to do? Give us like five easy steps to become a hypocrite for three easy payments of nineteen ninety-five. Is that what's going to happen here, you know? It's like some seminar down at the Holiday Inn that you're going to go to to learn how to do this. No, 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 no. I want us to see how this happens in our lives. The first is this. We forget what the gospel teaches us about who we've been and who we are and what responsibility we have to God. We do. Here's, here's my thought. That at that moment, and I illustrate it like this, that at, at a moment in our life that the Holy Spirit draws us to God, another work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we know that. That no man comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit draws us, he convicts us, he draws us to God. We come to God, we repent, we confess our sins to him. He comes in, he cleanses us, he washes us, and we become children of God. And then when we get up, we begin to look around, and we look at ourselves, and we look at others around us, And we say, wait a minute, maybe I need to look like that. Maybe that's the way I need to look, not like I'm looking right now. So I look at other people, maybe that have been more mature and they're walking in God. And so here's what I, 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 this is the way I have to look, right? Yes. Now, don't worry because I'm not going to preach in this every week. So just hang on, okay? All right. And if I did, it's fine. And for those that preach in these, then that's absolutely wonderful. My thought has always been, if you preach in one of these, what do you wear under it, right? Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Shorts and flip-flops, or less, I would say. Yes, yes, yes. And this is mine, and this is what I use for weddings. So if you're in the market, then that's what you're going to get, most likely. Okay, is this, right? Yes. And so here's the thing. We get up, we look around, and all of a sudden, the enemy begins to say, wait a minute, that your heart should be like his, but the enemy never tells us that they're in a different place in their journey at that point. So what, what, is the, what do we do? We put on this look of that, but yet down deep inside of us, we're still here. This is the reality of our heart right here. But yet this is the veneer or the facade that we want to others to see. That's exactly the story of Ananias and that of Barnabas. It's exactly why this is here. Yes, it talks to us about greed, absolutely, and what we bring to God, I, that all things belong to God. Yes, that's a story. That's a powerful point. Yes, it is. But yet I think under that is this underlying concept, which is the most powerful of all of this. And that is it's simply about that of hypocrisy. That we, we do this and we say, you know what? I can't look like this. I have to look like this as if I have everything together in my life. I have all of these things in a row with God. And God and I are like this, man, that we are really tight. And I've checked off all the boxes in my life. But the reality of your heart is this. Yes, it's that. And we do that sometimes. I think we do that a lot in our lives. Because one, we don't trust God. We wonder sometimes how God would accept us if God knows the reality of our life. If God knows the reality of your life, isn't that the most craziest statement I could ever make? If God knows, yes, God knows everything about us. There's nothing unknown to, to him so that 
we think that we hide something from God, just as Ananias was doing. So the reality is we want to look like this, but here is the real us. Can I tell you something about your life? God knows everything about you. God knows everything about you. There is nothing hid to him. And the beauty of God is this, that you are in process. Realize that, that you are in process. Don't ever forget that, that this journey in your life is, uh, your existence is about progress. We say it all the time and not perfection. It's about progress and not perfection. That we are in process And I understand this about God, a powerful concept that God meets us exactly where we are in this. Our tendency is to say, I want to look like this because I believe that I'll probably be more accepted by others. I'll be looked up to. And, and, and so this is the way I want to look. But in the reality of where we are, it's this. And we do that. I think out of a distrust for God and a distrust for one another. Oh, and that can happen in a church just like the New Testament church in the book of Acts. It can. It happens in a church that is so communal and so relational. It happens in a church that has all the elements together, yet we find that of an Ananias right in the middle of it. Now, can I tell you something real quick, because I have to work through this for a moment, that, that I'm not saying that that you're, you're unsaved. Listen to me very carefully. You understand this biblical concept, a theological concept. We've talked about this many times before. I go back to it for a repeat for a moment, and that is positional holiness. Positional holiness is based on texts like Colossians 1 and 21. It says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, that's the way we were before Christ came into our life. He has now reconciled in his body. Of, he has now... Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. And positional holiness simply means this. That in the state of your imperfection, God sees you as perfect. Why? Because you are clothed in the righteousness of his son Jesus. So that God sees you as spotless and blameless and perfect, even in your state of imperfection, because he's a God, a holy God, that can only look upon that of holiness, and so understand that that's the way that he must see you, and that's the way he sees you and I. But here is the thing, sometimes we think, well, it stops there, but that is not where God stops. Because what God wants to do in our life is this. He wants to take us from the very real of our lives, from these moments of our life, from the moments of Ananias in our lives, and he wants to move us to the ideal of our life, and that is the person that God wants us to become, that of the attributes and the characteristics of that of Barnabas. He wants to do that, but you have to realize, and I have to realize, that we are on the journey, and God is moving us to this journey of our life, and God loves us as much as he ever would love us exactly where we are in the journey. But God doesn't intend for us to stay there because we're maturing and growing as we simply expose ourselves to the word of God and the Holy Spirit still moves in our life that we, begin, we, we continue to grow. Understand that. So Ananias, he doesn't ask God to change his heart to a, a, a one of generosity. No, he thinks, oh, if I can just be like Barnabas. That's not transformation. That's not progress. That's not process. When in God's eye, it's not, it's not moving us from the real of our life to the ideal of our life. It's, not, it's the easy way out. 
No. Ananias, Peter says, why did you lie? You didn't have to lie. The land has always been yours. The proceeds were yours from the very beginning. No rule that says you have to do that. Why? Because he wants to look like something that he is not. Because he is simply, he doesn't have an understanding of God's nature and character and God's acceptance of him, nor of the community that he's a part of. And boy, we do that so well in this place. That we come in sometimes and we've had a terrible day. We've had a terrible week. You say, Mark, I've had a terrible month. Come on, get with it, you know. I, I, I'm dealing with issues. I'm struggling. I, I've fallen. I've stumbled. I've failed. I've sinned. All these kinds of things. And we come in here and we put on the robe because we don't want them to see this of us, the re- reality of us. Can I tell you, there's only freedom found in dealing with the real of your life. With God and in community. That's how the New Testament church is so vibrant and powerful. That's how people are drawn to them by thousands. Because it's a place that you can be real. Absolutely. God, let this be that place, Lord. Whatever that looks like for us at Hope Fellowship. God, let this be a place where we can be real. Where we don't have to wear the robe of Ananias, but yet we can, we can simply be ourselves. We can be exactly where God, you have put us and where we are on our journey as messy and inconsistent as that absolutely is for all of us. But you accept us and you meet us there because here is the thought. God is not only pleased with the final product of our lives. He is just as pleased with the process of our life. The ethos of our, our humanity is that of Confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. And that will be the ethos of our life throughout the existence of this world because none of us are perfect and that we are in great need of grace every day of our lives and we have no secrets to the God that loves us because we are in process. So let me tell you what. Understand this today. It's okay. It's okay where you are in your journey this morning as long as you are in the process. And I think we have to really understand that. So how do I become a hypocrite? The second thing is this, that we lack gospel relationships that out us in love. Yeah. It's this failure that we have to walk in community that reveals the true nature of our hearts. Let me tell you, there's a myth of our relationship with God. There's a myth of gospel relationships. And the myth of gospel relationships is this, that our faith is a private faith. Our faith is not a private faith. Understand that. It is not a private faith. No. Can I, can I show you a text? And, and I will show this, and then we will move on to conclusion and to the Lord's table. It's Mark chapter 9, 23, 24, and 25. We have shared this so many times. It's such a powerful story. But yet, it, it is that of where you struggle with unbelief, and that struggle is never private. It should not be private. If it's private, then you go back to the robe. You cloak, you simply veneer what is really going on in your heart and your life, and you're carrying that load on your own. None of us were ever designed by God to carry these loads loads on our own. We can't do that. The more we do that, the deeper we immerse in this. The deeper we go in this veneer. And so here's this story. What we find is a father who has a son who is demon-possessed. 
He has brought them to the disciples. They try to cast out the demons. They're unable to do that. So he simply goes to the man, you know. When you can't get anything done, you go to the boss. You go to the manager. He goes to Jesus. And so in Mark 9 and 23, and Jesus says to him, If you can, all things are possible for those who believe, he says. And immediately the father of the child cried out. He cries out. He doesn't say to Jesus, Jesus, come here, let me whisper in your ear because I don't really want anybody else to see what my heart is like. I don't want to do that. I want to keep this a secret because I want them to keep thinking like they think of me. No, he cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief is what he says in front of all the disciples, in front of all the people in the crowd that day. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. What is this? This is the father coming to Jesus and simply saying, Jesus, here's the thing. I know that you're good and I know that you're righteous and I know who you are. I know that you won't leave me. I know you're always for me, that you are never against me. But help me, help me. Because part of me is really wavering today. Because with my son, none of this makes sense. And I have great fear in my life about his life. And and I just don't understand. Help me with my unbelief. Because what I understand about faith is this. It is not our faith that moves mountains. It is God that moves mountains. The theme of the Bible is not that the world is not a messy place. The theme of the Bible is that God is at work in the mess of this world. That's the theme of Scripture. That God does work in our certainty and God works in our uncertainty. And I think that when we refuse to walk in that kind of community of openness and transparency, we wear the robe, the cloak, the veneer, whatever you want to call it, that hides the true us. When we do that, that we find ourselves struggling times a hundred in our lives. Where that in community we may still have the same struggle, but yet others are helping carry the load. Yes. How can we be encouraged in the struggles of our lives if no one else knows about them? How can we be encouraged in the things that we we fight against in our lives if no one knows about the fight that we're in. So how do I address the hypocrisy of my life? It, it's this, we preach the gospel to ourselves that, that we are sinners. We are sinners. We're saved by the grace of God, yet in great need of grace. And I don't have to be like Barnabas. And I don't have to be like Barnabas. No, that I am where I am in my journey That God is with me right now in the journey of my life. That God accepts me right now. It's not that God has accepted me to the the place that I just stay there and that's the way I stay there. No, it is a journey. It is a process. I'm going from the real of my life to the ideal, the person that God has designed for me to become. Absolutely, that, that, that is the process. 
But I think it starts with you and I saying, I need help. God, I need help in my life. God, I need help with this. God, I need help with my son. The disciples can't heal him. Can you help me? God, I need help with these struggles of my life. Lord, I'm still dealing with this. God, I've come to you, and, and I know that, that my heart has been forgiven. But Lord, I'm still struggling with fear and doubt. I'm still struggling with the lust of my life. God, I can wear the robe all I want, but it doesn't speak for my heart. It doesn't show really who I am. So God, this is really who I am. And I believe that God meets us in that place exactly where we are. He meets us there. So how can I be a better husband if no one else knows I need help? And how can I be a better father if no one else knows that I need help in life? How can I be a better student or friend or Christ follower? Listen, and, and, I, and I, I close with this. I have to go to this point. Peter is serious about this when he talks to us about this. He, he's, he's super serious. In verse 5, it says this, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. We know that. And look what it says. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Three hours later, the wife shows up. Verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things after her demise. What, what is Peter saying to us? What is God saying to us? That, that God means for his people to fear hypocrisy. I think that is exactly what he's saying to us. That we are to fear wearing the veneer within our lives. That we hate the sin that harms us. As God hates as a loving father the things that harm us. That we hate those things within our lives. It's not that we live under guilt. Or we, we, we live under that load of guilt within our lives because of that. Because Christ has carried that. He's taken that from us. But we hate the things that harm us. And we hate that of the veneer of our life. The greatest fear of our life should be living in a veneer. That we wear the robe, but our heart says something else about us. Because I'm not sure about God and and I'm definitely not sure about the person around me, the people around me today. Oh, can I tell you? That's perhaps one of the biggest lies of the enemy in our lives. To keep us truly in a prison of our own making. Thinking that we always have to be a Barnabas when that's not where we are in the journey of our life. God is just as pleased with our journey as he is the end results. Because it's in our journey that he is working in our lives, molding us, making us, loving us. That my faith is not a private faith. It's not. It was never given to me to be private. I've heard people say things like that growing up in church, you know. Well, you know, the things between God and I are just private. No, no, never. They were always given to you to live out in community. And so how can you encourage me in my life if you have no idea that I need encouragement? I love Christians. (laughs) Because I am one, you know, I do. I love Christians. 
Christians are the greatest actors and fakers on the planet sometimes. True. And some of you are sitting here this morning and you are an actor in a drama and that drama is entitled Your Life, Mark's Life or whatever your name is and you're playing a part and you have a loving father who accepts you as you are but yet moves you to another point in your life who desires and is working in your heart and life who knows your heart but yet part of your relationship with him is to express your heart to him and yet sometimes we shut him out and we wear the robe I think today is a moment that we take the robe off. I almost said that we 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 derobe, but you know, you know that 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 can go a lot of ways, right? Yes. Yeah. But we take the robe off. We lay it down. And we say, "God, here I am." And God says, "Yes." <laughs> and this is my imagination. God says, yes, this is the moment. This is the moment that I've been waiting for. This is the moment. I knew it would happen. This is the moment. I've been guiding you to this point. Now let me get into your life and work. It may not be pretty and it may be painful. Oh, but let me get in there and work. Trust him today where you are in your journey. Open your heart to him this morning. Nothing is hid from him. And live out your faith in community with others, with those around you, your faith family. How can we encourage you if we don't know that you need encouragement today? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Father, as we come to your table in a moment, God, that you would encourage us as we participate. Father, that we would know that that the elements, first of all, they give us a glance backward of what you have done for us, for your body which is broken for us, for your body which was marred, striped for our healing. Father, for the wine that represents the blood that was shed that covers our lives. So that, God, when you see us, you see us through the blood of your son, Jesus. And so you see us through the perfection of your son. That, God, we are way imperfect and you know that about us. But yet you see us through the perfection of your son, Jesus. Father, for these elements are not only just that of a backward glance, but they are a look forward. That, Lord, that we look forward to the time that you return, that we do this until you return. And, Lord, that we know that when you return, you will make all things right and all injustices will be corrected. 
Father, there will be no more sin. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more need to wear the robe, the veneer. Because we will be with you. But God, you're with us now. So we celebrate that at your table. May we open our hearts to you this morning like never before. And may we open our hearts to our brothers and sisters. And may we never be afraid to say to one another that we need help. So speak to us, Father. Speak to us powerfully. Now with your head bows and your eyes closed before we partake of the communion tables together. That if you are here this morning, we do not practice closed communion and you do not have to be a regular attender of hope to participate. All we say is what the scripture tells us and that is that you must know Christ. You must be born again. And to do that, that is simply that you feel the need for Christ in your life and you know that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's drawing you that you confess that you are a sinner in need of him, that you repent that I'm a sinner, God, forgive me, and then God forgives you. In fact, he has already forgiven you. You're accepting a work that's already done for your life. And the Bible says that when we believe in our heart and we confess in our mouth that we are saved. And so we trust him. We trust him. And in light of that, then that allows you the opportunity to partake this morning. But let this be a moment to trust God in your life, to open your heart to Him today. So when you come to take the elements, feel free to kneel at the front. Feel free to stand and pray down here to stay as long as you want and let God really speak to you this morning. So would you all stand please with me? Thank you, Father. Thank you that you meet us where we are in life. Thank you that you know everything about us. And nothing is hid to you. That you called us to live out public faith with our brothers and sisters. And so speak to us today, God. Speak to us this morning. Bless your elements.